Okay, last time we were doing gallium arsenide. So uh, we were told that in the conduction band the electron acts like it has an effective mass because its energy goes like this. So the effective mass turns out to be 0.07 times the electron mass. So we can calculate the binding energy if you put a silicon atom in place of a gallium atom in the uh, solid get a very small binding energy using our three-scale hydrogen binding energies. So at room temperature, the average <coughs> thermal energy is kicked out into the conduction band. So you can think of, there's also an effective Bohr radius with this effective mass inside the dielectric. It's an extra factor relative epsilon. So that comes out to be 10 nanometers. That's another way of saying that it's very easily bound now. So what we want to find out is what happens if we put a whole bunch of, well, we dope the gallium arsenide with some silicon with some density rather than just putting in one. So in that situation, without the silicon in there, the electrons in the conduction band would have this energy. So they behave like they're approximately three the effect of all the atoms is that they get this effective mass. Now we have some distribution of silicon. And the silicon is ionized because they've lost, each one has lost an electron. Silicon has an extra electron compared to gallium. So at room temperatures, one electron gets kicked from each silicon gets kicked into the conduction band. That means there's a positive charge sitting where each silicon is. So there's a potential. <coughs> and even though the electrons aren't bound to the silicon, they're going to be more likely to be close to where the silicon is because there's an attractive potential near each one. Charge density if we just look at a single silicon for the moment there's a delta function where the silicon is sitting with positive charge and then there's some distribution of the electrons so <coughs> we can think of it as being there's some average distribution of the electron that we'll call n naught, and we want to find how they're distributed away from that average. So the problem is that the distribution of the electrons depends on the potential. The potential depends on the distribution of the electron. So Dubai came up with a clever way of uh, figuring this out. So there was just 
point charge for the silicon, there'd be a 1 over R potential. We'll multiply that by some function of R. And last week we saw that the gradient of a function of this form, 1 over R times a function of R, or grad squared of such a function, will be grad squared of 1 over R plus 1 over R d by dr squared of the function. So grad squared of this potential gives a delta function plus the second derivative of this unknown function f. This delta function will match up with the delta function from the positive silicon. So then the piece that's left over is just the contribution from the electrons. density should be changed from its average value depending on what the local potential is. This is just a Boltzmann factor. So if the energy if the energy is really big, then it's unlikely that the electron will be there. If there's an attractive potential, then the energy is lower electron is more likely to be there. Can you explain how you got from the top to the bottom? This is just saying we're in thermal equilibrium, so we're going to plug this into here. So, I didn't so it's get just like an arbitrary function you chose? Or? Um, no. What I'm saying is that so this is still phi of r that we're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. So we're just saying in thermo thermal equilibrium we know that um, distribution of electrons has to we know the distribution of electrons should obey Boltzmann's should have I a Boltzmann I you were what we're trying to solve for is phi but we need to know n <coughs> of r which depends on phi so I haven't, I haven't added anything new. I just said it's in thermal equilibrium. So I haven't solved for anything yet. So this is an unknown function, and this is an unknown function. But they're related if we're in thermal equilibrium. And n is a function. n is the average value of the electron distribution, which is just set by how many silicons we added. If you use this equation, can't you just solve for phi by now we're gonna Now we're going to plug this in and solve for f, which will tell us phi. Okay, I still can't worry about that. So this, this is not really quantum mechanics. I mean, this is something you learned in thermo. No, no, no. I mean, the Poisson's equation and stuff, that, that makes sense to me. I just don't know where you're getting this in our equation. The local density of electrons will depend on what the energy of the electrons are at that local point. If the potential is repulsive, 
then in thermal equilibrium, that high energy states are suppressed. Right? That's what Boltzmann told us. So if there's a large positive, if there's a large repulsive potential, it costs a lot of energy. So the electrons will not be there in thermal equilibrium. They'll go someplace. They're more likely to be where the potential is attractive. And that in thermal equilibrium, those relative probabilities are weighted by this exponential of the energy over kVt. So if the potential is a small correction, then we can just expand the potential, or expand the exponential. assume the potential had this form of 1 over r times this function of f. So now we have an equation for f that we can solve. So the solution for f is an exponential. exponential. So the point of this was just to see that when we have these electrons floating around, they screen the silicon atoms and we get a Yukawa potential. And that's good because we know how to calculate scattering off Yukawa potentials. So the potential is 1 over r times e to the minus some number times r. So remember back in chapter 5, he mumbled something about electron screening potentials? This is a semi-classical way of seeing how that happens. So this. 1 over this QD is called the Debye screening length. And we didn't use any quantum mechanics, really. So now we'll use some quantum mechanics. So low temperatures. The electron, we have these approximately three electrons. So we should be able to describe it as a Fermi gas. So the energy, the Fermi energy in the Fermi gas should give us 3 halves kVt in three dimensions. And the number density should give us the Fermi wave number, 3 pi squared. So plugging into our formula for this device screening length.
were solving for t in terms of kf and the number density in terms of kf. So we just plugged in our Fermi gas relations. So we rewrote this device screening length in terms of k Fermi. But because that is so clever, uh, it gets its own name. So when you plug those things in, people start calling the device screening length the Thomas Fermi Fermi screening length. It's almost no content. So because we assume this Fermi gas, it's also called Thomas Fermi screening length. So last time, we calculated what the scattering amplitude off a Yukawa potential is. More orange chalk. So, in this case, Scattering amplitude is given by that. So we're just, yes? Is that a Q? This is a QTF squared. Sorry, it just looks like a 9TF. It's not 9TF. Kappa was given by the incoming wave number times the sine <coughs> of the scattering angle over 2. We saw last time. So you compare that to Coulomb's scattering amplitude. <coughs> if there wasn't any screening, Coulomb potential would have given this scatter scattering amplitude. star would have been the same. So comparing this and this, what do you learn? So you can, well you can, one way of looking at this is that this gives you some momentum dependent dielectric constant. So people write the effective dielectric constant like that. So factoring out kappa squared from here, you get 1 plus q squared over kappa squared. So has anyone seen? momentum dependent dielectric constant before. Okay. So forget that. Uh, that's I mean it's something that might be interesting to you in graduate school. Doesn't matter for us. It's just a fancy way of interpreting this Yukawa scattering amplitude compared to a Coulomb scattering amplitude. So it's called the dielectric function.
What matters for us is the cross-section, because <coughs> we want to get to the mean-free path of our electrons. scattering amplitude is the scattering amplitude squared. depends on sine theta over 2 and do the angular integration. And I'll just tell you the answer is this. So you get a 1 over QTF squared and 1 over QTF squared plus 4K squared, all squared, after doing that angular integration. And you can write that in terms of our effective Bohr radius. It's a little simpler. So that's a small doping fraction because Avogadro's number is 10 to the 23. So the cor corresponding to this density, Fermi wave number is 1 over 3 nanometers. And if you plug into our formula for QTF, you get uh, 1 over 5 nanometers. doing nanotechnology. Isn't that cool? Some people think nanotechnology is cool. It sounds like technology, not science, though. This is science. Where was I? So, <coughs> and our effective Bohr radius was what? Anyone remember? It was 10 nanometers. scales are coming out nanometers for our doped semiconductor. So what do you think the mean free path is? 
light year, mile, nanometer. So the mean free path is 1 over the density times the cross-section. So plugging in those numbers, we get 42 nanometers. means this gives you the typical spacing of the silicon. So this means we go over many silicon atoms before we actually scatter off one. So if the silicon wasn't there, electrons in the conduction band would make the material conduct. But in gallium arsenide, the conduction band is empty, so it doesn't conduct. When we put in silicon, those extra electrons get put in the conduction band. And even though they're scattering off the silicon now, uh, the scattering length, the mean free path, is long enough that they can travel over many silicon atoms before they scatter. So they're behaving like a metal. So those extra electrons that came from the silicon conduct like electrons in a metal would but there's a low density of them. So it's like a very low density metal, which is also what we call a semiconductor. Okay, so now we're done. Now we can do review session. <coughs> Any questions about this? How do you go from kappa squared and the differential amplitude to k squared in the um, scattering amplitude? Kappa squared had the sine theta over 2 in it. Mm -hmm. So you have to, there's a sine theta d theta integration to do. So just, you just have to do the integration. Okay, so some requested problems. So we wanted to see what happens when you combine spin s it's spin half to get total angular momentum eigenstates. So, we write our J and JM state. The maximum value of J is S plus a half. And so if we look at, at JM equal to S plus a half, that state has to be just this, where the Z components are lined up the same way. That's the only way we can get that maximum J and JM. If we lower the state with a lowering operator, we get a big mess. We get S plus a half times S plus three halves minus S plus a half times S minus a half times S plus a half S minus a half. So we've lowered the Z component by one unit. So 
So multiplying this out, we get s squared plus a half plus three halves sounds like two s plus three quarters minus s squared minus a quarter. So the s squareds cancel and we get square root of 2s plus 1. the lowering operator to the right-hand side, we can use the fact that the lowering operator is a separate lower lowering operator for each spin. So lowering the spin S guy. through by this root 2s plus 1. Here the s squareds cancel and we have root 2s. So there was a problem in the book um, to calculate these Clutch-Gordon coefficients for combining spin half with arbitrary spin s, and we were supposed to do it for any arbitrary state. So you need to do all of them. So that wouldn't be a good exam question because it would take 10 pages.
but lowering it once and taking the orthogonal guy and lowering it again. I probably wouldn't do it for arbitrary n. But it doesn't matter whether it's right. It doesn't matter whether s is one or two or s. It's the same. We can check that the cross check that we did it right is squaring this plus squaring this coefficient. We get one. Also asked to do some of the questions from the practice final. So several people wanted to see question three. Question three. So there's a spin half particle in a harmonic oscillator. One dimension. And then we add a perturbation, which is the magnetic field. The magnetic field is in the y direction. A, for first order in B, how many levels does the first excited state of the oscillator split into, and what are the energies of each of them? So <coughs> in one dimension, the oscillator has one state for each level. Now if the particle has spin half, and we turn on a magnetic field, then there are two, well, there's the degeneracy is two because it's spin half. There's two states. When we turn on the magnetic field, they'll split. So there's two states. First order expression to the energy will depend on what the spin value is. And the fact that I said that it was in the y direction really doesn't matter. So we could just rotate our coordinates and call this z. Or we could relabel everything that says SZ and change it to SY. Who cares? It's just arbitrary. So the expectation value of the perturbation Hamiltonian is minus gamma D SM H bar. So the energy levels are H bar omega 1 plus a half, or H bar omega naught 1 plus a half. Plus or minus gamma the h bar over two. So that was supposed to be easy. Maybe it sounded confusing because I said harmonic oscillator and magnetic field in the same question, but you guys can handle that. And part B is uh, turn on a new, turn off the magnetic field and turn on a new perturbation. Turn on 
perturbation is time dependent. And now it's got harmonic oscillator raising and lowering operators. So the question asks, if we start in the ground state, what's the probability to find the particle in the first excited state after some small time? So we'll just ignore the other states. So we can write our, our general solution that's a mixture of the ground state and the first excited state. So the first order in time-dependent perturbation theory, we're saying at t equals 0, a equals 1. <coughs> and then our first order formula tells us that b has to be given by this integral. The matrix element of the perturbation Hamiltonian between the states we're interested in, time t prime, multiplied by the transition frequency, e the i omega naught, t prime, integrated over t prime from zero to t. So the matrix element of this perturbation on the ground state, this annihilates the ground state, so that doesn't contribute. This raises it to um, the one state. And I believe that gives you a factor of root 1. Anyone remember? It's somewhere on the formula sheet. Oh, it gives us root 1 plus 1. So there's a root 2 from the raising operator. There's a b. And this coefficient the minus i omega t, and we have plus i omega naught to both at t prime. Integrating that exponential of e to b i omega naught minus omega t prime over i omega naught minus omega zero t prime. usual 
little trick. So we factor out half of the phase. Then we'll have EDDI omega not minus omega t over 2 minus the thing with the opposite phase. So that will give us sine factor of 2i. But we want the probability to go from 0 to 1 ground state to the first excited state for a short time t. That's just this coefficient e squared. So we'll get e to b squared over h bar squared. The square of the phase will cancel. scattering amplitude is a function of theta. So because it's spherically symmetric, we get to write an integral where the angular part's always done for us. So we're asked if we observe destructive interference behind the target when delta is 1.15, is uh, beta a positive or negative number?
destructive interference means that this f is negative. And if delta is 1.15, this gamma function is positive, and this cosine is positive. So beta is positive. Delta equals 1.15. It was claimed there was destructive interference, so the wave function is smaller behind the target. Mm -hmm. So that means well, F has to be negative. Mm -hmm. And for that value of delta, these things are positive. It says in the question that in that range, the scan function is positive. So you can check that that's positive, then. So beta has to be positive for destructive Question five, a hydrogen atom is prepared in N equals three, L equals three, M equals zero. It decays by emitting a photon through a dipole transition to an N equals zero state. What's the transition rate for this process? And then the, the hint tells you that you only have to work out the Z component because delta M is zero, in case you didn't memorize those selection rules. You remember delta L has equal one. That one you have to memorize. So that means we're going from three two zero to two one zero. Zero radio wave function. <coughs> Mark those theta to Z. Two one zero wave function. this is the tedious integration. Well, maybe remembering that you need the dipole operator. Does anyone uh, 
we can do the angular integration by writing x as cos theta. We multiply these out. Just get a polynomial in x. So you have to integrate 3x to the fourth minus x squared. Yep. Um, is each line like an equals or? Times. Times. Okay, so the x isn't actually the x is in multiplication table? Yeah. And then the radial part, you have to integrate r to the 6 times e to the minus 5 6 r over a. That's just plugging into the formula. times that. The transition frequency is the energy difference over h bar. ground state binding energy is 1 over 3 squared and 1 over 2 squared. So we just have to plug into the formula for the transition rate. on the exam, well, who cares about plugging a number on the exam? The point was to get this alpha to the fifth. mc squared over h bar times this number. It seems too easy, right? Completely straightforward. No? What part's not straightforward? It's painful because there's a painful integration, but all the formulas are 
it wastes 10 minutes to do those integrals and then. Yeah, I think the main thing is to understand what all those formulas on the formula sheet mean and what they apply to. So the point of giving you the formulas was so you wouldn't have to memorize them. And you could spend time trying to understand what they mean. That's the idea. What else have we got? chance to ask for questions for review. So there's office hours tomorrow at 4, and we'll spend the last class doing more problems for review. So that'll be our review session.